Hi, thanks for checking out this message from our River Valley Church family here in Boise, Idaho. We hope that it encourages and inspires you. For more messages, be sure to check out our other podcasts. For more content from River Valley, go to our website, rivervalleyboise.com. Enjoy this message. Amen? Yes. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I always can hear your voice. Thank you. I, I'm, I appreciate that. Hey, who's enjoyed the 10? This is week 10. Everyone say 10. This is week 10 of our Invited to the Table series. Who's enjoyed it? Good. You made it better. You made it to 10 weeks of our Invited series. I'm already missing. Anyone notice something different in the room? We're, we're just missing it. We're just missing it. Can we thank Miss Loretta again for all the work she put into that? It was so great. You know, we talked about over the last 10 weeks just so many people that Jesus ate with and would invited, and one of the people that he actually would have invited would have been a mother who was unsure if they wanted to keep their baby. Hmm? Don't we think? And um, I'm holding this bottle right here, and these are available in the lobby, and we as a church just want to support those mothers that are wrestling with what to do, and uh, so... We're running this drive. I, I want to encourage you to participate with whatever you can. If it's just your prayers, take a bottle home and, and pray over it every day. But um, Brian Bentler, who's over here, raise your hand, Brian. He's championing this, uh, this uh, fundraiser for us, and, and all of your proceeds, all of your money goes directly to those mothers and what they need. And so you can collect the bottle this week or next week, and then on the 21st, bring it back. You just kind of fill it with your change or even a note or, or your money or whatever you feel like, a check. You can put it in there, and it goes directly to Stanton Healthcare. Stanton is an incredible organization that supports those mothers and gives them what they need when they can't afford it, and they don't have that, that just, just the support to be pregnant. I heard it's a big deal. My wife's here. She says it's a big deal. So all you moms in the room, I have no idea what that's like. But um, I'll leave this here and just hope that inspires you. And, and again, if you're new, welcome. We are in week 10 of a series. Um, I, I, I hope... Um, I can help do a good job of recapping and just putting a, a bookend on this. I know all the people that have been here for all 10 weeks remember every word Pastor Tim, Pastor Rod, and I have spoken verbatim. We don't need to review anything. Terry, thank you. Um, that's two mentions of you in the sermon. You owe me $5 after, okay? But um, we're, we're in week 10. So if you're a new guest, welcome. There's, there's some stuff online that if you'd like to go back and, and take a look, if, if this is at all uh, appealing to you, maybe... It will be, maybe it won't, but I'm excited to, to talk about what Pastor Tim talked about last week and just kind of go deeper into it, but this idea of, of Jesus' last meal, communion, the table, the Eucharist, whatever you may call it, and, and we've been talking about the significance of what a meal was to Jesus, that it was acceptance, it was a welcome, it was cultural significance, it was, equal, it was declaring equality with those that you you sat with. And that's what Jesus did with every single person he encountered. And, and just to catch you up, what, the reason that was so, such a big deal, what Jesus did and who he ate with, because it wasn't done in his day. It was not. The Pharisees, the social elite, the religious leaders, they did not eat with a lot of people. They ate with the people that thought like them, that had money like them, and that did what they did. And when Jesus came, he flipped the whole social hierarchy upside down. He brought a new kingdom, an upside down kingdom into this world. And so that's what I want to focus on today as we talk about communion. And if you're new to church or newer to church, you might not even know what that word is, but if you've been around church a long time, we, we do this thing where we drink blood and eat someone's body, right? 
Wait, let me say that again. We drink blood and we eat someone's body. We think other religions are weird. Aren't we weird? I mean, isn't that weird? It's crazy. And so I hope this morning we can shed some light on just how incredibly beautiful it is. Because I think we get caught up, as if you've been in church a long time, or maybe you're just newer, but we caught up in doing things just for the sake of doing things and not actually realizing the incredible significance of what we're doing. And so I want to marinate in that this morning as we unpack what Jesus was doing in almost every action of his last week and even his whole life, but especially his last week uh, with communion. So I got to ask permission this morning for, for something from you guys, okay? Can we jump into deep theological literary, literary, I can't even say it, literary device study. Is that okay? Are you sure? Okay, because it sounds like only three of you want to do it, so we'll do it joyfully. And the other 97% of you, we're just going to do it anyway. All right, so we're going to talk about theological literary devices and how that's related to communion. So I've given you the big picture. Now we're going to get into the weeds. So um, the, the device, the literary device that is so common in the book of Mark, which is where we're going to be. You can turn to Mark 14, by the way, if you want to be there. We're going to be in Mark 14 almost the entire time. But in Mark 14 and throughout the book of Mark, he uses a very specific way of framing the historical facts of Jesus's life. And it's called an inclusio. Everyone say inclusio. Inclusio. Beautiful. And it's more commonly referred to as a sandwich. Sandwich. Who likes sandwiches out there? Okay, so you like inclusios. All right? So um, an inclusio is a literary device formed by creating a sandwich, placing similar material, phrase, verbiage at the beginning and end of a section of Scripture. Okay? So now you're all inclusio and sandwich experts. All right? But let me give you a, make you even more of an expert. The purpose of a sandwich is to alert the reader to a particularly important theme or to show how the material within the sandwich relates to the sandwich itself. So, everyone familiar with how to make a sandwich? How many pieces of bread? Okay, and what do we put in the middle? Who's, who, who's meat? Everyone put meat in the middle? Who puts meat in the middle? Cheese? Who puts cheese? Who's a mayo person? Anyone mayo? Okay, all right. Favorite sandwich on three, yell it out. Ready, one, two, three. I got turkey right here, and I think I got pastrami over here, so they were very loud. But we got bread, we got meat and cheese, we got some more bread. So that's how we're going to unpack scripture today. Now, if you're wondering why I'm going to somewhat torture you by talking about lunch at the beginning of a sermon, just because I can. It's good. I got to be here, so do you. So, um, Okay, Mark chapter 14. Now, catch you up in the book of Mark because we, we spent a lot of time in Luke and John. Okay, we're going to jump to the book of Mark because I, wanna, I think it's a really beautiful picture of communion. But Mark is the first gospel written. Mark, one of Mark's themes, okay, one of Mark's themes is that the insiders, the social elite, the religious leaders, the disciples, the people that would have been the insiders, the cool, the accepted, they miss what Jesus is doing. They just miss it. They're blind to it. They cannot see the, the, the beautiful picture of what Jesus is doing. And then the outsiders, they get it. And, and you're going to see this as we unpack Mark 14 and what it means. So that's kind of, that's kind of the catch-up. That's the 30-second version of the book of Mark. You're now Mark experts as well as sandwich experts. So Mark chapter 14, verse 1. This is going to be sandwich number one, bread number one. 
okay? All right, sandwich number one, bread number one. We'll call it whole wheat. We'll do whole wheat sandwich on this one. So Mark chapter 14, verse one, it says this. It was now two days before the Passover. And the feast of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. Now, a couple things to highlight. So we're in Passover week. We're getting to the last week of Jesus' life. Passover was the yearly celebration of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. They were in slavery for 400 years, and then they got out, kind of a big deal. And this was their yearly feast because who, who thinks that we're forgetful people, right? The Israelites were forgetful just like us. We forget what God has done in our life, and we needed a tangible celebration, and God gave them a meal a Passover meal. So this is what Jesus is talking about. This was the time of year. It was a very highly charged political time because remember, the first one, they liberated themselves from Pharaoh against his wishes, and now they're in persecution under Roman rule in somewhat what someone calls slavery during this time in Mark, and they're hoping every Passover that comes around that they're gonna be freed. They're gonna be freed. That God would do for them what he did for them 16, 1800 years ago in Egypt. So that's the lay of the land. The religious leaders, the chief priests that's me- that are mentioned here in, in verse one, they are kind of a liaison between the Romans and the, and the Jewish people. So they're playing both sides of the fence. They're, they're trying to keep the, the Romans happy because the Romans put them in power. They're trying to keep the people happy because if the people are happy, the Romans keep them in power. So again, that's just a little context for you as we get into what Jesus is going to talk about. So it was now the two days before the Passover and the Feast of Elam Bread. We already talked about that. And the chief priests, that's the religious leaders of Sanhedrin, those that were trying to keep the peace during this politically charged time. And the scribes were seeking. It's an important word. The original Greek is actually scheming. They were scheming something up. They were scheming how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said they do not want to do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Why did they not want to uproar? It's because they wanted to stay in power. If there was an uproar, the Romans would get new leaders and give them the money that they were getting and put them in power and unseat the current leaders. And so they were trying to do this quietly. They wanted to do it without a show. So sandwich number one, bread number one, the religious leaders were scheming, okay? That's the first part of the sandwich, okay? Now, we're going to go to bread number two. We're going to skip ahead. You with me? Sandwiches? Okay. Even if you're not, I'm going to keep going. Okay. So, sandwich number one, bread number one, religious leaders scheming against Jesus. The insiders, the religious leaders, miss who Jesus is. Mark chapter 14, verse 10. It says this. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, so one of the 12 disciples who spent three years with Jesus every day, who Jesus called to be a disciple out of his larger group of 72, out of his larger group of 144, out of his larger group of all the people he ministered, he was an insider. He was in the inner circle, not the inner inner circle of the three, but he was in the inner circle of the 12. He should have got it. He should have got who Jesus was. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity or a time to betray him. Now, sounds familiar, right, from the first part of the sandwich. So sandwich bread number two is Judas is scheming against Jesus. So we have religious leaders 
insiders scheming against Jesus. And then we have a disciple, Judas Iscariot, scheming against Jesus. That's the outer edges of the sandwich. Now, luckily for you, we aren't vegetarians here. We're going to talk about the meat right now, okay? We're going to talk about the meat, okay? Meat and cheese and everything in between. Man, you guys are going to get hungry during this sermon. You're going to get so hungry. Verse 3. Jump back to verse 3. It says, and while he was at Bethany, that's just outside Jerusalem, so they're right outside the city, in the house of Simon the leper. Now, if you're not familiar with what uh, leprosy was, first of all, it's just a tough way to refer to someone. Hey, I'm not, I'm not going to call you by your last name, but you're just Simon the leper. I don't know if someone called me Zach, the guy who had a busted lip the last two weeks or something like that. But um, Simon the leper, leprosy was a disease that people did not associate with you. So he would, would he have been an insider or outsider, do you guys think? You guys are so smart. So smart. So he was an outsider. He was an outsider. So as he was reclining, as Jesus was reclining at the table, so we're having a what? What are we having? Meal. You guys are so good. We're going to participate this morning, by the way. We're going to participate. You guys are doing great. A woman came. Now, for those that have been paying attention the last 10 weeks, or if you're new, is a woman in this cultural society an insider or an outsider? Outsider. Outsider, right? Outsider. So a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask, which is very important. You should underline that in your Bible if you have a pen. And the flask and poured it over his head. So we're in the house of an outsider, a leper. We have an outsider, a woman, who breaks a very expensive flask. Now, why is it important that she breaks it? Because if she didn't break it and she just poured some of it, she could have kept some of it, right? But she breaks it. She says, I, I'm giving everything, all of this, all of whatever, however she earned this or however she acquired this, I am breaking it, a very expensive glass of pure nard, which I know we all know what nard is, right? But a very expensive glass. Many would argue more than a year's wage is worth. And she breaks it and anoints Jesus with it. So that's so important. It costs her a great amount of money and she completely abandoned it to anoint Jesus, and she could foresee, or she just listened to how many times Jesus said it, that Jesus was going to suffer and die. He was gonna suffer and die, and he was, she was preparing him for that. She was participating with him in his suffering. She was identifying with him in his suffering. And again, remember, this is the middle of the sandwich. You have Mark here, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God from the eyewitness testimony of Peter, writing this book to us a couple thousand years ago. And what is he saying by how this is sandwiched together? He's saying, out or insider, religious leader, didn't get it. Missed Jesus, didn't think he was the Savior. Insider, disciple, Judas, lived with Jesus for three years, didn't get it. But in an outsider's home, from an outsider woman, not only does she get it, but she participates with Jesus and identifies with him in his suffering. So, sandwich number one. Scheming religious leader doesn't get it. Then we have the woman who gets it, outsider, scheming disciple, doesn't get it, okay? You can eat that sandwich. We're gonna move on to the next one, okay? All right? We're gonna move on to the next one. So, Here's the next one. 
Mark chapter, Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So, they're getting ready to go eat the Passover. In fact, um, Nation and Tucker and Pastor Chris and I had a great conversation this morning about Jewish time. Uh, Jewish time and American time aren't the same. The Passover was on a Friday, but their Friday started Thursday night. So this is Thursday night after sunset. They're going to get ready to eat the Passover on their Friday. Verse, verse, uh, verse 13 continues on. He says, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, this is weird because men didn't carry jars of water in this day, in normally women. So it would stand out from, from the city. Busy city, crazy stuff going on, probably a million people in, in Jerusalem, and there would be this man carrying a jar of water. And he said, follow him, verse 14, and where he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with? And I want you to underline this, my disciples. This is actually the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus refers to his disciples as my disciples, a possessive pronoun, my. Every other time in the, before this in the Gospel of Mark, it is the disciples. It is the disciples. This is the first time it is my or his disciples. Very, very important what Mark is showing us here. And he will show you, verse 15, a large upper room from furnished, room furnished and ready. There prepare for us and the disciples set set out and went to the, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, I always think it's funny because, you know, disciples walk to this guy, he's got a jar of water, they say, hey, we're going to use your room, we're going to invade your house, and the guy goes, okay, sure, you can just come into my house. Just crazy God stuff. I don't know if that amuses anyone else but me. But, but this, this terminology of go into the city and prepare something for me is, is paralleled to something we studied four weeks ago. And again, I know you retain everything we talk about, so, but if you don't, I'm going to remind you what we did. It's paralleled to when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, triumphal entry on a donkey. If you look back at Mark chapter 11, I actually threw a fancy chart together for you up there. Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 14, all the language is super similar. Hey, in Bethany and Bethpage, on their way to Jerusalem, he sent two disciples. He does the same thing in Mark 14. In Mark 11, he asks for a donkey. In Mark 14, he asks for a room. He says, what are they going to say when we, they say, why are we asking for this? Hey, the master said so. So we have Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 14. Now, I should have told you this, but this is, this is actually not a sandwich. This is a literary parallel, okay? It's a literary parallel that what happens after Mark chapter 11 is Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses it. He turns this Passover week upside down. He says, you, you guys aren't doing this right. He cleanses the temple. What's interesting after this passage in Mark chapter 14 is he's about to introduce communion and he's about to declare that there's no more need for a temple. There's a new temple and a new covenant. So it's kind of Jesus setting the stage and Mark setting the stage for this incredible change this epic moment that 2,000 years of history has been leading up to. That's what Mark wants us to see as he, as he structures his, his letter here, his gospel. So that leads us into sandwich number two. So we had sandwich number one, a parallel. Now we're going to sandwich number two. Are you guys with me? Are you sure? Like, you don't have to agree with me, but am I making sense? Okay, cool. I just don't know sometimes. So 
Okay, so Mark chapter 14, verse 17. Sandwich, parallel that sets the stage for another sandwich. 17, it says, and when it was evening, he came with the 12. Notice he doesn't say my 12. He only said that back earlier in Mark. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. So, eating equals equality, acceptance. If you're eating with someone, you're an insider in their life. One of you who is eating with me, who is an insider, is going to become the ultimate outsider and betray me to death, is what Jesus is saying. Okay? Keep that in your brain. Verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and to say to one another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And again, Jesus comes, oh, we always picture Jesus as a super nice guy, but he's literally sitting across the table from Judas and going, it'd be better for you if you weren't born, Joel. I mean, right? I mean, that's pretty intense. Joel, you were just looking at me, and you got it, so... But it would be better for you if you had not been born. Imagine Jesus saying that to you. The ultimate insider, the guy that lived with Jesus for three years, gave up all of his career, his family, lived with them, has learned, watched all the miracles, and he looks across at him and goes, it would be better for you if you hadn't been born because you're scheming to kill me. Okay, that's bread number one of sandwich number two. I know you're keeping this all straight. It's on the screen if you're you're struggling. Okay, We'll we'll go to the other piece of bread. Okay, we'll do the meat last again. Jump ahead to verse 26. Verse 26 of Mark, chapter 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all, key, all, not some, all, fall away. Now, in Mark chapter 4, there's what we call the parable of the sower. Okay, and you can go back and read it. But the term, the Greek word for fall away is the same Greek word used in Mark chapter 4 when the people whose faith doesn't take root and the enemy comes and steals it away, the same word is fall away. It's incredible. Mark's so consistent. God is so consistent as he writes to us. It's just beautiful. So that they will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, that is a direct quote from Zechariah. Guess where else Zechariah was quoted? In Mark chapter 11 on Jesus' triumphant entry. So again, the parallels and these sandwiches are so intentional. Jesus is setting the stage for something so important. He wants us to get it. Mark has designed, as he's been inspired by God, as he writes his gospel, to communicate something to us so significant that they've set it up over 14 chapters and 2,000 years of history. Verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Even after you mess up, even after you abandon me, even after you betray me, I'm still going to be there for you. I love that. Verse 29, Peter said to him, you got to love Peter. Good old Peter. Tim, thought, Tim did a great message on Peter. You should go back and listen to it. He said, even though they all fall away, all, I will not. And Jesus said to him, and this is where Jesus kind of looks at Peter and goes, bro, dude, that's cute. You're going to do it too. I feel like sometimes we think we're not going to fall away, and Jesus has that same expression to us, bro, you did it yesterday. Um, again, maybe that's just me. And Jesus said to him, verse 30, 
Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Basically goes, Jesus, you're a liar. I'm not going to do that. Again, Peter, what a dude. And they all said the same. Every single one of them. No way. I'm not going to do this. So, sandwich bread number one, Jesus predicts the betrayal of Judas. Sandwich bread number two, Jesus predicts that every single one of his disciples that has spent three years with him, that has watched every single miracle that he's ever done, that, that are, are Jews who would understand the significance of this week, the significance of him quoting Zechariah, the significance of him coming into Jerusalem on a donkey to declare that he is the servant Messiah King, they would understand all of this. They would see all these things happen over the course of three years every day, and they were going to deny him and abandon him. Kind of a big deal, right? They would have known that Jesus was invoking new covenant language and they still were going to abandon him. Can I remind you what Jesus said earlier in Mark chapter 14? How did he call them his, the disciples? Did he say, the disciples or my disciples? Was that before or after he predicts all this? Before. Hmm. You know, a common theme, and we'll talk about, is that when we approach communion, we think that we've got to get cleaned up that we've got to have our heart right, that we can't be in any way, shape, or form walking outside of Christ. You know the first communion ever? The disciples were not only walking outside of, of what Jesus had intended for them, they were scheming to betray him and absolutely in their hearts going to abandon him because of their lack of faith. That's where we're at. And Jesus not only invites them to a table, he calls them my Disciples, I want you to hear this this morning. If you are struggling in your faith, you are his disciple. Did you know that? No matter where you're at, no matter how long you've been struggling, whether you've been a Christian for one day or 35 years like me, you are his disciple. You are his disciple. So, I kind of got ahead of myself because I get excited about this. Sandwich bread number one, Judas, betrayal. Sandwich bread number two, all disciples, betrayal. Here's in the middle of it. Here's what, what Jesus says. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it, including Judas. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And that phrase, this is my blood of the covenant, is a direct quote from Exodus 24.8. You can look up later if you don't trust me. But it was literally the invoking of the first covenant that God made with his people. The first covenant. It was the confirmation. The blood of a lamb was the confirmation of that covenant. So as Jesus is is in this moment, this highly politically charged moment amidst the week of Passover, he is so incredibly intentional with how he paints the picture for his disciples and us that in the midst of their incredible struggle, their lack of faith, their complete abandonment, their total failure in the most epic moment in the history of the world, he invites them. 
He invites them to his table, and he calls them my disciples. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So that's the sandwich. That's the sandwich. Betrayal. Jesus inviting betrayal. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us today? You know, as I've been walking through this and just reading through it and meditating on it, I've, I've, I've been deeply convicted of my lack of faith. My ability slash inability, but my ability to see God work over and over and over again in my life to be a quote-unquote pastor, to be on a church staff, to work for a Christian school, which I have, and to over and over again be an insider, what someone deem an insider, and completely miss Jesus. And that's what's happening here. That's why I think it's so relevant for us today, because the first sandwich is the most unlikely of people getting it, seeing Jesus for who he is, participating in his suffering. The religious leaders miss it, the disciples miss it, but the woman gets it. She is the ideal disciple. Hear this this morning that the the ideal disciple, the ideal follower of Jesus that you think it is, is not it. It's not. It's the person who goes and humbles themselves and says, I can give you whatever I have. I'm going to completely abandon it. I'm going to break the jar. I'm going to pour it over you, and I'm going to declare that I'm going to participate you with, with you in suffering. Yes, we believe in you blessing us, God. Yes, we believe that you are everything we need, and that, that's hard sometimes, but I'm going, to, I'm going to participate in suffering with you, Jesus. That's the ideal disciple. That's what Mark and Jesus are telling us here. And then as you look at the second, the second sandwich of communion, you're looking at Jesus, completely aware of what's about to unfold. And can I tell you this this morning? He is completely aware of the choices you're going to make over and over again in your life. It is not a surprise to him. My faithless, sinful choices are not a surprise to him. He looks at those disciples and goes, I know you're going to betray me. You're not just going to do it once, by the way. You're going to do it over and over and over again, even after we go through this little exercise and these sandwiches, and even after you write gospels and, and, and do miracles in my name, you're going you're gonna to fail, and you're going to fail, and you're going to fail. But in the midst of that, even though you schemed against me, you missed me, you wanted to sit at my right hand and, and debated with each other who was the greatest and who would be sitting and ruling with me in glory, even though you wanted me to come and overthrow the Romans and to reign in glory and power, and you totally missed that I was going to be a suffering servant that died for the world instead of came and conquered the world, even though you missed that in your faithlessness and failure, you're mine. You are mine. That's what he's saying. That's how he frames it. Is your mind. You can't earn it. You don't need to clean up. You don't need to examine yourself because you didn't. I'm just telling you that you're mine. Because of what I'm about to go and do on the cross, you are mine. Because of what I'm about to pay with my life and my blood, you are mine. And you're not just mine once or at this time, you're mine forever. 
That's the beauty of communion. That's the beauty of how Jesus shared the first communion meal with his disciples. His disciples. And I don't know about you, again, I touched on this earlier, but how I grew up interacting with drinking blood and eating bodies, right? Again, you got to say it out loud because you got to say it because that's what you're doing. That's what we're picturing. If you're new here, I'm sorry, we're weird. We believe in talking snakes and all sorts of stuff and we can talk about it another time. Pastor Chris will answer all your questions. Email him, Chris at Valley at Boise.com. I don't, he'll take you to lunch. He's generous. I have, I have a nine-month-old and three-year-old. I don't have time for that. I'm just kidding. Um, what, how I grew up, and, and again, I'm not saying this to, to throw shade on him. It's what I, I've taught, too, as a pastor before, and what I've come to realize, I was so wrong. I just missed it. I was an insider who totally missed it. But what I, how I grew up when we had communion was it would be thrown in at the end of a service. We didn't really have an idea of what it was, but what we were told as the pastor prayed was, hey, this is really special. You have to be really special to take this. Make sure you, 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 if, you're, if you're sinning or if you're struggling, you need to go spend some time. In fact, you might not want to even take it right now. You, you can't do it. Let the plate go by. Because you've got to confess your sins, get your heart right, make sure you're going to read your Bible three times tomorrow and the whole week. You've got to pray six times a day, and then you can take communion. Anyone else? No? Now, maybe that's a little extreme. Maybe I'm hyperbolizing. My wife says I do that sometimes. But the general gist was you've got to get cleaned up before you do this thing. And again, I, I think the intentions of myself and those other pastors and, and whoever's taught that is that, hey, this is really, really an incredible thing. This is really serious. We need to approach it with reverence, which I agree with. But nowhere in the Gospels in any way, shape, or form does Jesus or Paul or any other writer ever say that you've got to be worthy to take this thing, that you've got to be worthy to participate in the meal of Jesus. That's not what it says. Now, most of you, if you know the passage that most people base it on, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a bonus free. It's not, in, it's not on a slide. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is addressing issues in the Corinthian church. He is addressing communion specifically. And he says that you need to, uh, you, so the verbiage is you need to examine yourself because that's where we get it. But what he's actually saying is he's confronting the rich elite who were taking communion first on the inside of the home, which is the social higher, higher place, and they were eating the best food, and they were leaving the bad food, almost no food, for the poor. So what he's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, by the way, is he's just correcting the fact that communion was, just as we talked about for 10 weeks, it was an invitation of equality. That the only thing that identifies us is not our social status, but it is the fact that we identify with Jesus' suffering. He was correcting that. It has no way, shape, or form, not one iota, there is no debate that he was saying that you've got to get cleaned up before you take this thing. And if you don't believe me, you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I do believe, like I said, that we are supposed to approach it with great reverence, with seriousness, that we aren't supposed to approach it whimsically and just do it to do it. But what I think we need to correct in my heart and in our hearts is that we don't have to clean ourselves up because guess what, church? 
you can't. Let me say that again. If you think that by saying a, a little prayer right before you drink some grape juice and eat this amazing bread made by Anna Buchanan, which tastes so good, like you should just make it for me just to make it for me. I'd be so pumped. If you think saying a little prayer is going to pay for your sins, we, we have a wrong idea of what the cross did. Because there's no way that you can clean yourself up good enough to be worthy to take the bread and the cup. There's no way. The only way we are worthy is by identifying with Jesus on the cross and declaring that his worthiness on the cross is good enough to overcome our unworthiness. His clean His perfect life, his sinless life, the beating he took, the scars that he has are powerful enough to overcome our unclean. That, that is what we declare when we take communion. That's what we declare. There's a lot of other things we declare about diversity and equality, but I don't want to focus on those today because I think we got those, honestly. I think we're, we're doing a good job of getting that. But, but we've got to get that communion is not about our worthiness. It's just not. It's not. So as we, as we think about this, I'll throw this quote up on the screen, and I just want you to just marinate it a couple times. I'm going to read it twice. There is no one worthy of the Lord's table. The only type of people invited to the table and into the new covenant are the unworthy. Those that don't have their act together because that's the only type of people that exist. Let me read it again. There is no one worthy of the Lord's table. The only type of people invited to the table and into the new covenant are the unworthy, those that don't have their act together because that's the only type of people that exist. Amen? That is the only type of people that there are. The people who stand on this stage, who sing on this stage, who work for churches, they are unworthy. You, I love you all. You're awesome. You're beautiful. Lunch is coming, by the way. Sandwiches are coming. But you are unworthy. And you're just the same unworthy whether you went out last night and did some things you shouldn't or whether you were reading your Bible till 1 a.m. and praying. You're unworthy. We are unworthy of Jesus and his sacrifice and his gift. And when we take communion, we are declaring that. We're declaring, God, we have no way of paying for the sins that we commit yesterday, right now, and tomorrow. But we know that you did and you are good and you are worthy. But we don't think about that when we take communion, huh? What's our brain go? Oh, I better pray and, and, and ask, for, ask for forgiveness and, and make sure I'm good enough to take this. And, and again, like I said, reverence is important. Approaching that, thinking about the cost of, of what this is, is important. I'm not saying it's not, but what I'm saying is we cannot think of it as worthy and unworthy, as clean and unclean. You see, Communion is a tangible, and as the worship band comes up and we're going to get ready to take communion, but communion is a tangible 
reminder for forgetful people like you and me. It is the Passover meal for the, just like the Passover meal was for the Israelites coming out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, us, slaves to sin before we met Jesus. It is the tangible reminder and celebration that our status and our worthiness is all tied up in Jesus' worthiness and status. It is the tangible reminder that the Israelites failed, the disciples failed, and we failed. We don't deserve it. The Israelites didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. God chose the Israelites not because they were special, just because he wanted to choose them. Jacob was a liar. Abraham was a liar. Look at the history. David was a murderer. I mean, we could go on. They were unworthy. He just chose them, just like he's chosen you. Communion is the tangible reminder and celebration that even though they and we continually fail and mess up over and over again, you will walk, probably walk out of church and get in a fight with your spouse. It's just what happens, right? Or you did it on the way here. Even though you do that, Jesus is clean and his worthiness and his sacrifice deem you clean and worthy. You know, in the midst of the biggest moment in the history of the world, 2,000 plus years in the making, the disciples who walk with Jesus 24-7 for three years, they missed it. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think about, about this as, as, as we get ready to take communion. I couldn't have been as bad as the disciples. There's no way if I watched Jesus walk on water twice... I would miss it. There's no way that literally three or four days before this passage, Jesus raises a man from the dead who was dead for a week. There's no way I'd miss it, right? There's no way we'd be that faithless. There's no way we'd make that big of an epic fail in our life following Jesus. And you know what I have to come back to over and over again? Yes, I do. How many times has Jesus raised things from the dead in my life? How many times has he walked on water in my life, parted seas in my life? How many times has he turned just a couple of fish and a few pieces of bread into food for thousands or for me in my life? How many times has he blessed me and saved me? How many times have I forgotten? And here's the beautiful part, is that when you do that, you fail over again. He looks at you knowing you would, knowing you will. And before you even do it, he says, you're my disciples. You're my disciples. You're my disciples. You're my disciples. You're not some just random people that I'm dying for. You're mine. And I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. That's good news to me. You're ready just to come up here and grab communion. The elements are up here on the stage. And I hope today we can kind of reshape our thinking about what this meal is and what it means and why we do it. Because I think it's beautiful. So we're going to come up here after I pray and, and gather our elements, and you're going to hold them and partake together. And I want you to just spend some time 
thinking about how worthy Jesus is and how unworthy we are. Not because you need to get cleaned up, because you can't. Not because you need to do something to declare your worthiness, because you can't. Just because it's true. And I hope it brings you a little bit to tears. And it moves you. And then I hope it brings you to just that sly smile that I am his. And he is mine. Father, we just love you. And Jesus, we love you, God. We declare how good you are, God. We declare how worthy you are and you were, God. We thank you that we are not worthy, God. We thank you that that our salvation has nothing to do with us and everything to do with your finished work on the cross, Lord, that you went to the cross knowing that we would fail, knowing that we would mess up, not just once, not just a couple times, but so, so many times, God, and you went to that cross and you died for us so that we could be deemed worthy, God, so that we could be deemed clean, God, so that we could be invited to your table, God, and that you call us yours, God, you call us my disciples, God. So as we, as we get ready to take this meal, we celebrate and we remember your sacrifice. We remember what you did, God, and we just ask that in our remembrance and our celebration that it would change us, that it would shape our hearts and shape our thoughts, Lord, and help us live a life that's different than everyone around us, God, that we would, we would celebrate our unworthiness because it declares your worthiness. and take them back to your seat. Thanks again for listening to this message from River Valley Church. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by it? Make sure to share it with them this week. Again, for more content from us, please check out our website at rivervalleyboise.com.